Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 23rd, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from San Francisco on the west coast of the United States a city which I think is anywhere but at the center of the world, both geographically and metaphorically. The big story in San Francisco today is about $20,000 designer trash cans, which apparently are struggling to contain trash, might be a perfect way to summarize the crisis of uh, San Francisco as an urban center. Not all cities, though, are as pathetic, as failed as San Francisco. Um, we did a great show last year with Ben Wilson, uh, a biographer of the idea of cities. He has a new book out, Metropolis, A History of the City, Humankind's Greatest Invention. And I think that Wilson is indeed right. Um, in my view, at least, cities are humankind's greatest invention, which makes San Francisco all the sadder. Fortunately, not all American cities are as pathetic as San Francisco. Uh, New York, of course, remains a great city at the center of the world, or at least imagines itself to be at the center of the world. Did a show uh, a few months ago with Thomas DJ as an interesting new book out, New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess and Transformation. We did a, a show also last month with Dwyer Murphy, a novelist about how to walk in San Francisco, uh, not in San Francisco, in New York, how to make the most of city life. And it requires, uh, I think, putting your, your phone down and walking a few hundred miles a week, at least that's what he argues in his book, An Honest Living. Not all cities, though, of course, are American cities. There are many great cities outside the United States. And one of those, perhaps the greatest of them all, is Berlin. Um, there's a new book out on Berlin, uh, written by my uh, guest today, Sinclair Mackay. Uh, Life and Death in the in the City at the Center of the World. That's the American subtitle. The British subtitle is Life and lo Loss in the City that Shaped the Century, both perhaps accurately capture the spirit of Berlin. Uh, Sinclair, uh, is Berlin uh, at the center of the world? You're talking to me from Limehouse in London. Uh, yes, uh, the Limehouse in London, which, uh, which is central in the world. Uh, it, uh, the, the Limehouse in London has had its its, its moments, I have to say. Uh, but yes, uh, the, 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 I must take issue also with your comments on San Francisco, which I found to be absolutely beautiful when I visited in 2014. Uh, thank you so you much. You don't live there, though, Sinclair. If you lived here, you'd have a different opinion, I think. <laughs> well, also, can I say thank you so much? It's such an honour to be uh, to be asked uh, to talk to you today. And yes, Berlin. Um, Certainly throughout the 20th century, throughout the course of the 20th century, uh, Berlin occupied a unique place in the imagination of the world, I think. It could have it's alternately seduced and haunted the international imagination. And it also became 
uh, as well as uh, the, the, the focal point of some of the greatest art, some of the greatest cinematic innovations and all the rest, but it also became through uh, the, the, the Nazis and the rise of the psychosis of Nazi genocide and the Second World War, and then the, the, the city being rent in two thereafter. It also became the focus point of the world's fears, uh, I think. Uh, within, this, uh, within this city of roughly three million people, you had... All the terrors, I think, of the 20th century being played out. Before we get to those terrors and indeed the 20th century, what was Berlin like pre-20th century? Of course, it was the it was the capital both of Prussia and then of the United Germany in the 19th century, but it wasn't the great city that became in the 20th century, was it? No, it, it, it had kind of a, the, 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 the stiff dignity that you see in some of the surviving architecture. It gives you a, sort of, uh, a slight flavour of that Wilhelmine uh, city. I remember it was Eric Hobsbawm who wrote of it. Um, he was there in the 1930s, the historian to be, Eric Hobsbawm, uh, wrote of it that, it that seemed to be marked by these, uh, these slightly dull, kind of pompous buildings and dull, pompous statues. Uh, this this then gave way to an extraordinary kind of uh, tsunami of innovation uh, that came just before the First World War. Uh, it came in the shape of some extraordinary um, a, a modernist industrial architecture from the likes of Peter Behrens. Uh, Berlin started to get factories that were very much more beautiful uh, than the homes of the people who worked in them. Uh, there was an entirely new kind of aesthetic model uh, that was being... Uh, that was being kind of unleashed, and that in itself created a kind of firestorm of kind of inspiration. So you go from this uh, this this 19th century kind of uh, city, which has this monarch at the centre of it, and this, this extraordinary kind of ponderous kind of neoclassical palaces, uh, uh, to a city that suddenly is kind of exuberant in youth and extraordinary in its kind of uh, creative kind of firepower. Then, of course, you get the first... Yeah, I mean, um, the, the Viennese historian writes about that period as the... Uh, Peter Bloom as the, the vertigo years. To what extent was this reinvention of Berlin a reflection of Wilhelmine Germany's aspiration to world power, to its competition, in particular with London. I assume that the architects of Berlin were trying to compete, what, with London and Paris in terms of building a, a world city? Yeah, I mean, yes, there was an element of that. And certainly there was, as you say, as you rightly say, there was that kind of ferocious competition between uh, imperial London in all of its kind of, uh, late 19th century pomp and, uh, and and so many aspects of uh, the, the, the just unified Germany. Germany was only unified in 1870, 1871 um, as a, a nation. And you get this a sense of... Uh, uh, London, for instance, in the, in the late Victorian period, had been very fast in terms of technological innovation and in terms of the new electrics, many of which were being developed, um, ironically, by, uh, by brilliant Germans, uh, Siemens, for example, um, and, and various others, who gave lectures. And there was a fantastic German community in London who did a lot of innovative work. But yes, uh, the Berlin, uh, as we get into the, the, the start of the 20th century, uh, you see a kind of a fever uh, start to overtake Berlin, a kind of fever of innovation, but almost a, a fever of kind of catching up too. Uh, what happens is that the, uh, the, 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 
the, the city's industry becomes repurposed towards electrics and of chemicals uh, and a, a, a whole new kind of modern world of luminescence and production lines and automation. And you get vast uh, new citadels like Siemensstadt uh, being built or, uh, in what was then the northeastern edge of the city, uh, with factories that looked like, well, actually, some of them quite aesthetically pleasing, factories that looked on the outside like kind of uh, luxury hotels, but within were these extraordinary kind of caverns and chambers of kind of innovation and light and progress. And I, uh, and I guess this sort of reflected the, the German wave of industrialization, although I just read a a uh, biography of um, Max Faber and uh, in his trip to the United States. And he was still really awed by Chicago when he came to Chicago in, I think, 1902 or 1903. So presumably Berlin, which I, I guess Weber would have been quite familiar with, it, it, it still wasn't competing with, say, Chicago or New York at this point, was it? Uh, not in uh, not in those exact terms, but in uh, but in terms of uh, the, the 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 work and the industry, uh, it wasn't so much the, the the shape of the city and the the, the look of the city that was being changed at that point. Uh, it was the nature of what the city was producing, um, mm. and in terms of innovation, what it was producing was 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 galloping to to to. Uh, keep pace, as you say, not just with London, but also also with America. But as I say, it was firms like Siemens who were, who were producing so much of this miraculous new electrical light that was illuminating uh, uh, illuminating the rest of the, we the rest of the Western world. Uh, but then you also have. Uh, the, the speed at which it starts to happen in Berlin also has this knock-on effect, which also happened in London in the mid-19th century. Mm. Which is, speed which is becomes the, the metaphor of the, the world that was being created. To what extent, given Wilhelm Elm Germany's military competition with Britain in particular, to what extent was a lot of the innovation military and to what extent was Berlin pre-First World War a kind of consequence of this uh, arms race between uh, Germany and Britain. Um, I'm not sure. I, 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 certainly, the arms race was there, and certainly the 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 the, the, the beating drums that led up to that conflict uh, in 1914. You know, they, they they could be heard as far back as 1907, 1908. I mean, you hear a lot of it in uh, English popular uh, literature at the time, with the, 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 the Germans becoming the you know the, the master enemies in conspiracy uh, in fiction. But in terms of uh, in terms of the arms race, in terms of uh, the, uh, yes, to a certain extent, but Berlin was still doing something else. It was still it was still transforming within itself. Um, it was still making itself uh, a, a, a modernized city in in. in in the shape of Chicago, uh, the you know, sort of streets that were that was newly drenched with light, uh, radiant boulevards. Um, it was, but there was, it, it took uh, the, the, the major innovations in that sense came after the First World War, but they were certainly in progress. Um, also, in terms of uh, you know, the, the, the weaponry, the arms race, it's, again, it's not something you associate Berlin so much with, right? Uh, at that time. G Germany, of course, was a profoundly, in, in many ways, perhaps like United States today, a profoundly divided country before the First World War. Berlin has always been, at least in my mind, associated with the left, um, with socialism. 
given the importance of the Socialist Party and the Socialist Movement and the work, the work you, you mentioned Eric Hobsbawm earlier, one of the great yeah. historians of, of, of the working class in, in, in the industrial world, to what extent was Berlin always um, a left, a, a place for the left, culturally and politically, even before uh, the First uh, World War? It is kind of fascinating. That, that, yes, I mean, you, you get wondrous figures, uh, that, that wondrous in the sense that their, their biographies are so fascinating, like the Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Yeah, yeah who were both murdered um, in, in Berlin, right? Murdered in Berlin in uh, 1919. Um, Rosa Luxemburg, I think, was a case that, 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 that she, I think, is a, is a brilliant. So Rosa Luxemburg, who uh, originally hailed, I think, from, from Poland, but it was a brilliant kind of polymath in many ways, multilingual, but also a fantastic intellectual, and as you say, the, 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 a raging sort of communist kind of firebrand. Um, and with a, 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 a long association with Berlin, and uh, in some ways seemed in it, to, to capture some of that spirit. She was unusually for uh, a, a, a left-wing firebrand. She was actually very kind of, um, sensuous and charismatic. Um, had a fantastic sense of humor. Had a cat called Mimi. Um, loved to laugh. Uh, loved to love. Um, the, the, the Rosa Luxemburg, had, even though she wasn't young by the time of the First World War and by the time of the German Revolution that came after the First World War, she had a lot of young followers because her spirit was intensely youthful. And I think that, in a sense, is, is kind of what you see with a lot of the kind of Berlin left. I associate it very particularly uh, with youthfulness and that kind of youthful energy and that kind of youthful innovation. Um, it takes on a different flavour to... Um, some outbreaks of leftism certainly that you see uh, uh, certainly see in Russia and and to the east of Europe, but also in in London and America. It has particular kind of um, uh, yeah. It's kind of interesting, thing. maybe surprising in a way that the the revolution in 1919 happened in Munich rather than Berlin. But let's we're, we're running ahead of ourselves, Sinclair. Let's talk about the First World War. It, it seems to be really the the beginning of your story, the beginning of the 20th century in Berlin. How did the First World War, which was such a traumatic, catastrophic war in Germany, both during the war and after in terms of its impact, how did that change Berlin? I think it's 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 more the case of after um, with Berlin, although certainly amid all the the intense tragedy, amidst all the uh, the the. the unfathomable um, tragedy, actually, the unfathomable death, there was still this kind of youthful propulsion uh, in Berlin, still this kind of innovative propulsion in Berlin. Um, it was uh, in the Berlin film studios that the the, the, the the German government said, right, we're going to start making some serious propaganda films, for instance, and that was the, the real spark of the beginning of the German film industry, which then became uh, an amazingly innovative uh, world leader. Um, turn film into an art form. As I say, you had this extraordinary kind of architecture uh, still going on. Uh, you still had uh, this, this uh, hyper sped up uh, drive towards, uh, towards uh, new industry, but it's the aftermath. Of, of, of the war that uh, sees the kind of biggest impact. Now, as you say, the, the, the German Revolution, uh, well, in fact, you know, the, the outbreaks everywhere, the, you know, the workers' councils in Dresden, uh, this, that, the other. In Berlin, uh, what you see is uh, something, uh, there's 
the, the extraordinary anarchy that breaks out on the street. The streets turned into sniper canyons, uh, the leftists fighting uh, the free corps, the, the fanatical right-wingers, uh, you know, the, the men returning from the war, presumably many with uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or whatever. Uh, terrible violence uh, breaking out on the streets of Berlin in the winter 1918, uh, combined with the outbreak of Spanish flu, which of course was 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 going around the world as a result mm. of mutations. Germinating in the trenches, uh, but Spanish flu, this terrible illness where uh, the lungs of COVID, uh, so much worse than COVID, you know, people bleeding from their eyes, and it afflicted the young particularly badly rather than the the, the elderly. So you have all of this at what should have made Berlin a terrifically kind of morbid city. This kind of this failed German revolution. This fails of socialist uprising, which then turns uh, the entire city into a whistling bullet uh, sniper canyon, uh, while at the same time, other Berliners uh, who are neither left nor right, simply trying to get on with their lives, uh, contrived somehow to do so. And that's something, it's a recurring leitmotif, I think, in the story of Berlin in the 20th century, is how its ordinary citizens... Uh, saw the world being fragmented around them, saw the violence breaking out all around them in all sorts of different horrific mm. forms, and yet somehow contrived to find ways to keep their own level of stability in the midst of this kind of this 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 urban kaleidoscope of, of horror. So and Sinclair, we quickly... get to so we get to Weimar, the creation of this failed republic that lasted 10 years. Um, many people will be familiar with um uh, Christopher Ishwood's Goodbye to Berlin, which is a little later, and of course the movie Cabaret. Mm -hmm. How was was Berlin the, the spiritual heart of Weimar in in, in both its best and worst senses? Oh, I think uh, the, the, I mean absolutely the, yes. It, the, in terms of I mean the, the do best and worst of really uh, really the, the uh, it's more extreme forms, I suppose. Uh, the, the, the Weimar finds its particular expression in Berlin, as you say, through uh, you know th through the famous images that we see from Cabaret, uh, which were the, it, 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 certainly true. They were aimed quite a lot. Uh, it has to be said at tourists. Uh, you know, there's there's those famous cabarets and bars where there was an enormous amount of uh, sexual ambiguity, fluidity. There's homosexuality was uh, not just not just tolerated on on the streets of berlin uh there, there was an active thing but in, in the german code there was paragraph uh, 175 which uh legally forbade homosexuality but the police in berlin were told now listen just don't don't harass uh you know, sort of gay couples there's there's there's, there's, there's you know, there's no point to do this. And in fact, Berlin had been leading the way for some time in that. Uh, in, in the Wilhelmine years, too, there was a certain amount of uh, tolerance that we, we, we associate with Weimar years, too. Um, but this also saw, um, as I mentioned before, you know, the cinema becomes an art form uh, in Weimar, Berlin. Yeah, what is it about cinema? I mean, um, you know, when I think of post-war cinema, the Vendor's movie, Wings of Desire, the East oh, German film, Lives yes. of Others, it always yeah, seems yeah. as if Berlin is the most, I'm not sure whether or not it's the centre of the world, but it's certainly the most cinematic of cities, isn't it? And is I that mean, partly yes, because yeah. it's the heart of cinema in, in terms of its beginnings in the 20th it's the, century. It's the heart of cinema as an art form. So you've got the, the Fritz Lang, F.W. Murnau, uh, you've, you've got these enormous Babelsberg studios in the southwest of the city. The, 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 the extraordinary films from The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari to the extraordinary kind of 
uh, the Wagnerian epics that were being directed by Fritz Lang, Metropolis, uh, that sci-fi vision of Berlin's future. But on top of that, the, the, the city was always in love with its own cinematic images. Uh, there were documentaries about Berlin, which were huge hits uh, in cinematic terms. And in fact, there was a young director uh, called Billy Wilder, uh, then spelled mm. with an I-E, who began his film career in Berlin in the very last days of the silent era. And if you watch it now, um, even though it's a silent film, it's, it's a comedy involving two couples, two men, two women, uh, taking a lazy, sunny Sunday out uh, by the lakes and the outskirts of the city. A sunny, romantic comedy, not a swastika to be seen, uh, not a young communist fighting a Nazi kind of anywhere. It's extraordinary that it, it has no kind of uh, forward echoes of everything that's to come. But it's perhaps there, as well as in the other extremes, that you get a sense of what Weimar Berlin was like. It wasn't just about, you know, the, the Christopher Ishwood kind of uh, gender fluid uh, uh, possibilities. It was also very much a, a city for uh, to be enjoyed by young people who uh, at last, after all these years of instability, you know, the hyperinflation of the mid-1920s where people were forced to eat family pets, these, these terrible, nauseous economic plunges uh, that the Weimar went through. Finally, tragically, by the late 1920s, there was uh, just, there seemed to be some kind of plateau yeah. of recovery. And I mean, of course, in a way, crash, it, 1929 yeah. started the tsunami that then hit Germany two years later. And you mentioned the role of technology and light and uh, movement in pre-First World War Germany. I guess the cinema captured that more than anything else. So it shouldn't be surprising that the movie industry and the idea of film and Berlin in the eye of the camera became so important in Weimar. And then, of course, we come to the end of Weimar and the rise of the Nazis. How important was Berlin to the Nazis when they weren't in power. Did you know Hitler was of course from I think Vienna originally. Yes. Did he see Berlin? For Hitler and for the for the Nazis, was was Berlin the did it sort of encapsulate everything that had gone wrong with Weimar and Germany? But they wanted to cleanse um, it kind of, it kind of did, but it didn't. At the same time, Berlin was very important to them in the 1920s as they were struggling to find to, to kind of build that base, uh, because in a sense they were also aiming to seduce it. Um, I suppose that, that it might be that it might be argued that some areas of Germany were possibly slightly easier to seduce uh, than others when it came to the rise of Hitler. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not just including Germans in that. You know, there were a, an enormous quantity of British people who were seduced uh, you know, by the rise of the Nazis too, including, yeah, including the royal family. Yeah. royal family, indeed. So, so I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, certainly not marking people out, but, but simply the techniques uh, that they they used for that seduction were being honed in Berlin in the 1920s. You see Goebbels developing his skill uh, with using mass media. Yeah, well, uh, cinema, I mean, in many ways, they, they turned this miracle on its head. I mean, they still were masters of modern media. They just used it in a particularly invidious way. Absolutely so, but uh, but also Berlin encapsulated the 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 other side. They had a the, the Nazis were odd in the sense that they had a horror of cities. Uh, they had a particular mm. horror of Berlin in terms of being an asphalt. In, 
interesting. Well, because it was and a, they also a, saw a mixing thing. They also, place of race and religion. Indeed, and so, they said, because Berlin had been a fantastically cosmopolitan city, but it had, uh, for its size, it had an enormous Jewish population. Fantastic. I hate the word assimilation because it always seems to it always seems to suggest that. Uh, the, the German Jews were somehow different Germans to other non-Gentile Germans. It's, it's a horrible, kind of hor horrible term. However, it has to be said that in in Berlin, uh, the Jewish community was not just assimilated. It was absolutely vital, vital part of the, the organic yeah, part. The of Jewish community were not. Yeah, we, we've done a couple of shows on um, the Jewish community's dominance of the, the art business, um, which they stood both on the inside and the outside of modern art. But I also assume of cinema. I assume that the movie business in Germany under Weimar was pretty much dominated by Jews too, was it? Uh, not, I, 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 I wouldn't have said noticeably. I mean, that's not something that, uh, that's certainly not something that jumped out at me. And uh, I, I, I would hesitate about that. I mean, there are a number of uh, a number of the artists, uh, for instance, who who left uh, Berlin uh, with the rise of Hitler, including Fritz Lang, and including of course went to Hollywood, I guess. Uh, yeah. Went to Hollywood. Uh, that is indeed Billy Wilder. Uh, the Billy Wilder was Jewish, but a number of other, the, the other luminaries uh, went. But that's also sort of slightly beside the central point, which is in the 1920s and the post-war years, Weimar Berlin became extraordinarily cosmopolitan in the much more general sense. You know, it, mm. it welcomed the business from right the way around, right the way around the world. After the uh, revolution in Russia, I assume many, many Germans. Uh, sorry, many, uh, many, yeah, Russians. many, many Russians. Yes, indeed. Well, Vladimir Nabokov uh, yeah. was one of those who, who made a home in the city uh, from the early 1920s onwards. And if you read his novel, The Gift, uh, which is written in the, in the late 1930s, but it's about 1920s Berlin, you see this fantastic portrait of this community of uh, so-called white Russians uh, in Berlin at the time, jostling with a number of other kind of immigrant communities and finding their own kind of uh, immigrant identity. So by the time the Nazis come along... Uh, uh, the Berlin for them is uh, the asphalt city, which uh, to the Nazis is dominated by uh, the, the, what they see as Jewish money, Jewish finances, uh, even the department stores uh, the, the, they, they 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 see as being some, the Jewish dominated. So they they associate uh, urban life uh, with that, with that kind of cosmopolitanism. But uh, what you also see, and this is the fascinating thing, I, I, I did a, a lot of research at what the, the Contemporary Witness Exchange, fantastic project they've had going for some years in Berlin, where they've simply collected uh, the memories of older Berliners, uh, recording them while they could, and these stretched back to sort of the, the, the 1930s, the 1920s, and these were kind of these were kind of girls and boys, particularly boys in the 1930s, being drawn into the Hitler Youth. Now, when the Hitler Youth started, uh, there were actually a lot of working class families in Berlin who hated the idea of it because it was so authoritarian, and there was some the, the, the instinctive rebelliousness of the the, the Berliner jibbed against that kind of authoritarian thing. But it has to be said that a lot of kids loved it, not because of the ideology, not because of the hate, but because it took them out to the lakes and the forests at the weekends. And they got to mix socially with, with boys and of higher classes than themselves, mm. but on a plane of complete equality. And they got to play kind of all sorts of games in the forests, all sorts of, a lot of them was absolutely obsessed incidentally with cowboys and Indians. Yeah, uh, we, did a, we, did, um, we did a show a couple of months ago on, Hitler's boy soldiers. So, right, okay. Um, yeah. Under the the Nazis, and be, but before the, the 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 war, the Second World War began, how successfully did the Nazis after they came to power in 1933? How did they eliminate the vitality, the diversity, culturally, sexually, politically, in 
in Berlin. Was by by 1939 was it essentially a Nazi city? By 1939, yes, but it took them. Uh, it, 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 uh, it did take them a while. Now, of course, the, 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 the from 1933 onwards, the the, per, the persecution of the, the Jewish uh, uh, people began instantly. Uh, you know, the uh, Jewish people expelled expelled from professions. Uh, the, 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 this. Becoming second-class citizens instantly, so they no longer had the protection of law. I'm mean, just the, the the terror for the Jewish population began kind of instantly. Um, for the Gentile population, for the middle-class population, uh, the, the, what they saw in Berlin uh, was a sense of uh, uh, the, certainly this new order rising, but a, a new order that didn't bring those terrifying instabilities of the 1920s, um, particularly inflation, still, of course. Yeah, but in terms of in terms of it's always been said about particularly working class Berliners that they're, 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 they could always be, you could always tell them by a particularly cynical sense of humor, a particularly rebellious spirit, and a certain kind of, a certain kind of edge of satire that always, that certainly when you read a lot of contemporary accounts, and of course no one, no one would say later that they were, they were instantly won over to the, the Hitler cult, but it's remarkable just how many voices in Berlin you see, even when they're very young, saying they loved, they loved things like the 1936 Olympics and the spectacle mm. of that and the way that the city was transformed for that in the, the eyes of the entire world. And they were dazzled by the, the, the Albert Speer kind of uh, the, the architecture of light and uh, this, kind of, this extraordinary kind of new aesthetic. But when it came to the actual totalitarianism of it, the, the, the youthful outbreaks of rebellion are interesting kind of all the way through. There's a, it, there's a metonym uh, in, the, in the city's love for jazz than the young people's love for jazz, uh, I think. The, the Nazis were very swift to ban jazz on the grounds of degenerate music and racist uh, uh, grounds. And in fact, they weren't the first to ban it. It was banned in Thuringia in 1930. But in Berlin, you have this uh, thriving kind of subculture all the way through, where uh, the, if live music is being played in, in cafes or, or whatever, wherever the young people hang out, there are very strict rules about tempo uh, that the musicians have to maintain. Mm. But when the uh, when the officials aren't looking, the tempo starts to speed up and it starts to get hotter and hotter. And the, the exasperated uh, Nazi officials know that this is happening, but there's this, uh, there's this, in a sense, very little that they can do about it. And that I thought was kind of a continuing symbol. This continues adds weirdly through the war. There are young people uh, in Berlin who take their gramophone set uh, down to the lakes uh, for days out and hide among the reeds and listen to forbidden jazz uh, among the reeds. And it gets to the extent where in the end, in 1941 or so, Goebbels simply had to give in also to the, to the, the, the demands of Luftwaffe pilots. And the Nazis had to set up their own jazz swing orchestra called Charlie and their orchestra. That's remarkable. You're, you're, you, you've written a, a book about the bombing of Dresden in 1945, a best-selling book, Sinclair. You've also written about Bletchley Park, the secret life of Bletchley Park, which was a huge hit about, which enabled the British to break through the German code and bomb the country. What was the war like in Berlin? Um, was it as... It wasn't quite as flattened as, as Dresden, was it? But it was still 
brutally no. bombed by by the British and the Americans and the Russians. No, and and the horror is on a different uh, is on a difference of gradient in a way. The, I mean, the, the the horror is no less. I mean, the, Dresden was flattened basically in the space of one night. Uh, uh, the, the almost unimaginable twenty five thousand people killed in the space of one night of bombing that created a firestorm that, that rose a mile into the sky. With Berlin, uh, it became a way of life uh, from nineteen forty three onwards. The the RAF and the American Air Force were absolutely relentless, night after night, uh, going for Berlin, to the extent that uh, Berlin's population, the, the, the women and the children and the older people who were still living in the city, were basically living entombed. Uh, for, for 18 months, that every single night they would have to go to either specially designed bomb shelters or to these huge air flat tower fortresses, which was, was extraordinarily grim, or just brick cellars. And every single night they'll be, they'll be feeling in their bones the boom, boom, boom of distant bombs. And the city was so uh, dislocated and the mutilated around them that uh, th th it became difficult to find particular streets, particular districts, and friends and family had no way of keeping tight. So our place was, was essentially flattened. We did a show with the historian David Nassau on the million refugees left uh, in 1945. He has a book, The Last Million. Um, Berlin became flattened, a place for refugees, a place of mm -hmm. terrible. Yes, because with it, after each terrible night of bombing, and this particularly uh, as we go into 1945, and the Red Army has broken through. Right, and uh, they onwards didn't in the east. behave like Not gentlemen, did they, in Berlin? The, the, I Russian. the Russians didn't behave in a very gentlemanly fashion, probably quite understandably, when they when the Russian soldiers came to Berlin. Oh, but isn't that uh, but the, 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 isn't that quite chilling in its own right? Because you're absolutely right uh, in the, in your use of the word understandably, because that's the state uh, the, the, the world regarded what was coming to Berlin as almost a, a, a force of nature. It was like the, the a classical tragedy. It had to be, it had to be enacted. There, there was no other way that it could go. But nonetheless, you can feel the terror in all of those accounts, particularly the refugees coming from Pomerania, Silesia, all these rural refugees coming to a city where there's there's no safety for them there either. There's no sanctuary. There's no well, then a lot of refugees, a lot of the, the German... The German communities driven out of Poland, the old Czechoslovakia, did, did many of them come to Berlin? Did it become then uh, a refugee city immediately after 1945? Well, what happened was that, that huge numbers of people came to Berlin, but Berlin couldn't uh, couldn't absorb all of these people. And this is before the end of the war, too. Uh, the, the, the city simply couldn't absorb that many people because there were terrible food shortages of, as it was. People were living on dandelions by this stage. Uh, yeah. the, the, the rations were absolutely tiny. The calorie count had gone right down. And so basically, the, the people, people were coming from the east into the city and, and, and making their kind of way out west. Um, and to the north uh, and to the south. But for Berliners themselves, there was nowhere to go. There was, there, there, what was the point in running? What was the point of fleeing? Because where could, where was that possible to go? And it's interesting, again, as you see it in so many accounts, the uh, Berliners always so ambivalent uh, towards the Americans and the British because before the war, uh, and even during the Nazi years, um, American culture and British culture had suffused the city. Uh, you know, the, the the Margaret Mitchell's novel Gone with the Wind was top of the bestseller lists in Berlin uh, for a, a very long time. Laurel and Hardy were hugely popular. The Adventures of Flash Gordon, 
you know, all this in the 1930s, there were British novelists like A.G. Cronin, who were top of the bestsellers in Berlin in 1939. All of this has been switched off like a light by the authorities, but the Berliners remembered. Uh, and so their associations of the British and the Americans, but particularly the Americans, were with that of benevolence. Despite the months and months and months of bombing raids, uh, which were flattening the city into the ground, America was still associated with golden-hearted cowboys and an essential sense of fair play. So there were people praying that it was the Americans who would take over in Berlin and Claire, thinking about this and Berlin being so flattened during the war, we don't credit the Russians with very much, but should we credit them in part with rebuilding, obviously, the eastern part of the, the city after it was divided? And actually, well, they're not just they're not just the eastern part of the city. I mean, uh, the, yes, you're absolutely right. To put this in context, uh, the, the Red Army famously uh, was sluiced into Berlin, having having fought through the gates of Berlin, the Silla Heights, uh, in April 1945. What then followed was uh, three weeks of just absolute horror for the citizens of Berlin. Uh, and particularly for the women who who knew what was coming because they'd heard from all those refugees yeah. fleeing from the countryside, the atrocities, the sexual atrocities that were being perpetrated by the Red Army, and all the stories were true, and they started to happen in Berlin, and th th there were literally uncountable numbers of women who suffered atrociously in Berlin at the hands of the Red Army. So many millions of accounts of, of rapes, uh, so many abortions that happened immediately afterwards. But you have this extraordinary duality at the same time, because as soon as the Soviets take Berlin, and I think even before the, the Nazis formally capitulate, um, they, they were instantly putting in plans for restoring the city. Now, the, the, it was because they were determined that the city was going to be theirs, that it was going to be uh, Soviet territory, and that, 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 that Berlin was going to work towards the greatest, the, uh, part of the greater Soviet empire. Nonetheless, in terms of infrastructure, uh, they managed to get the Berlin subway trains running within days uh, after con uh, conquering the city. This is a city that's just in smouldering, molten ruins. And yet uh, the roads start being cleared, uh, water is reconnected, electricity is reconnected. Within two weeks, I think, they have the theatres back up and running. And uh, the, any cinemas that can be salvaged are back up and running too. The concert halls reopened within two or three weeks too, uh, because the, the the incoming Soviets, uh, the, the General Bazaar in particularly, understood how central uh, that kind of culture was to the life of Berliners and how vital it was that that was restored as quickly as anything else. So you find the curious thing where the, the Berlin actors who had stayed, uh, figures such such as the very thoughtful actor Paul Wegner, uh, who had not been a Nazi but had stayed throughout the regime, uh, was suddenly co-opted uh, by these invading Soviets uh, who had seen him in the Golem uh, in 1920, and he was a huge star in Soviet Russia. And he was immediately co-opted along with other actors uh, into, into rebuilding the city. So there's the extraordinary of duality, that kind of, uh, that, that, the terror by night as women waited for the footsteps on the stairs, which they knew was herald horror. Uh, but next to this extraordinary thing where classical musicians are playing once more uh, amid these ruins to in immensely grateful audiences because when you're home you need that transcendent escapism that they provided at some point i think someone's going to make a, a best uh, write a best-selling book or a, a movie about the behavior of the russian troops um 
We did a show with a Richard Obrey, another British historian, oh, yes. uh, on a the Second one, World yes. War, um, Blood and Ruins, and we asked, has the Second World War ended yet? It didn't really end in Berlin for 40 years, did it, as the city was split? No, it didn't, and hence the subtitle, uh, The Life and Death in the City at the Centre of the World, because Berlin remained at the centre of the world. Now, the, the world's eyes were fixed on Berlin in 1945, and that's why uh, quite a substantial portion of my book uh, focuses on 1945, because that's kind of, uh, there are moments in time like lighthouses, where the beam turns uh, and illuminates all that went before and what came after. And in 1945, uh, you see... Uh, the, the, the germination of aftershock, uh, with, with the world still uh, looking with terrible anxiety at Berlin, because by the summer, and it was only by the summer, the British and the Americans and the French take up their designated sectors of occupation. But Berlin is a city, as a city, is an island in an ocean of deepest red. Uh, the, the Soviets have the East yeah, Germany. And by 1949, geographically, uh, they, in every sense, it's still kind of unbelievable really that you and what makes it but that's but this, uh, the one thing i failed to mention earlier actually was all of berlin's scientific innovation uh in, in the 1920s the 1930s brilliant scientists like lisa meitner uh who were galloping ahead with atomic physics and quantum physics and it becomes almost a quantum city uh after the second world war because it has so many different states existing side by side that somehow shouldn't and yet do uh you have the communists existing side by side with uh the the, the, the capitalist americans and the british and the french and this is before the Berlin Wall. This is 1945 to 1961, where you have the city where it's possible to move uh, between mm. these different zones, as long as you have uh, a certain amount of documentation on you. And so you can move from a communist realm to a capitalist realm just simply by crossing over a street. And somehow, somehow, uh, they, 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 with incredible uneasiness and neurosis, uh, coexist. But this is why the world is looking at it and thinking, oh, is this going to be the trigger for the Third World War? Is this going to be, certainly we see the Cold War uh, breaking out because in 1948, we have the Berlin blockade. Yeah. which is where the world looked with incredible anxiety. But the, the Soviets uh, basically blockaded the west of the city, which was occupied by the Americans, the British and the French. Uh, they blocked off uh, the roads, the canals, the railways. The only thing they couldn't do was block the airspace. And so what happened was the, the, the Berlin airlift, the most extraordinary uh, logistic exercise, where the, 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 the Americans and the British were flying in planes one after the other, literally seconds after the other, just continually for 11 months, bringing in some food, fuel, everything, toys for children at Christmas. Um, while on the Soviet side, the Soviet papers, uh, the newspapers were saying, there is no blockade. Uh, the, the, we have plenty of food here. The West Berliners are absolutely free to come and get it if they, if they so wish. And it was true, West Berliners could have gone over that border and, and picked up some food supplies from the Soviets. They chose not, 95% chose not to. Uh, so so it, it's a remarkable, I mean, the whole thing is, you keep, we, we both keep on using this word remarkable, but which isn't an exaggeration. And then, of course, we yeah. get to the building of the wall, uh, Le Carre's, the spy who came in from the cold, a wonderful yeah. movie about what the oh, wall yes. was like. Um, so bleak, isn't it? So is bleak. this the final chapter, Sinclair, in Berlin's history as the city at the center of the world? I mean, after 89, when the wall comes down, uh, Fukuyama, who's been on the show made the error of calling it the end of history it wasn't the end of world history but maybe it was the end no. of berlin's history is that fair 
Well, one might say it was simply the start of a new phase in Berlin's history, but it was a start of a phase where, mercifully, after decades of living under one form or another, under totalitarian rule, there were there were people in the east of Berlin, uh, if they were very old, who had lived under the Nazis and then under the implacable communists uh, from 1933 right the way through till 1989. Uh, the lifting of the shadow, uh, almost like the disappearance of a ghost in 1989, that communist regime, and then the reunification of the country a couple of years later happily uh, brings us to a new phase in Berlin history where it's no longer the centre of the world in terms of anxiety and fear, where the, the world is looking with, uh, the, the, you know, as you said, when the Berlin Wall went up in 1961, uh, initially the world didn't quite fathom what had happened. It does seem too surreal really to get a handle on. But then when it became clear what had happened, it's oh, right, okay, here's a new locus of, of nuclear fear. And the, the nuclear affairs were still going on in the 1980s too, but when the wall came down in 1989, and I remember myself that night, just absolutely looking at the television, gaping uh, with disbelief, having believed that this would last as this wall would last as long as the pyramids as part of the landscape of the world, suddenly it wasn't there anymore. What we have now is... Uh, the, the, the spirit that you see in Berlin now is still that essentially youthful spirit, uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it's found as kind of its fullest bohemian flowering, I suppose. So the, you know, some of the old Stalinist power stations with their very austere, uh, severe architecture have been repurposed into the most extraordinary kind of Baroque uh, Rococo nightclubs. And that sense of kind of rebelliousness and artistic kind of uh, spark and innovation and endeavor is still very much there. Uh, but the city now is, uh, you know, th th you know, thank heavens, this kind of this ocean of peace, um, but one which memorializes its own past very carefully. It doesn't do it through metaphor. It actually just presents you with the, the starkness of what these things were. So there are surviving sections of the Berlin Wall. There's even a Berlin Wall watchtower, which has been preserved. Uh, who needs metaphor? Who a, metaphor a metaphorical memorial? It actually has the real thing. You still have gutter churches. You still have these flat tower fortresses. In in these parks, there's ex these extraordinary kind of concrete catacombs, which look so grim and forbidding, but which tell a story of a city that's absolutely kind of unapologetic about its past and also showing off its own of its wounds and scars. Uh, in a sense, what happened in Berlin could have happened anywhere. But I would also say that it was never really Hitler's city, and it was never really Stalin's city either. Um, uh, despite the incredible implacability of the East German regime. And one person who you might, one politician or artistic figure who somehow captured its, its spirit more than anyone else historically, you mentioned Rosa Luxemburg. As mm. you said, she wasn't born there, but she lived there. No. No, uh, and was very brutally murdered there. Uh, her body dumped into a canal afterwards. Uh, there, there's so many, so many incredibly beguiling kind of figures in the story. Walter Benjamin, Hannah Arendt. Um, right, who all, of course, left. My favourite book on Berlin, certainly in the communist period, was The Wall Jumper by Peter Schneider. Uh, you think of Gunter Grass, too, although I don't know if he even lived in Berlin. Certainly no. a lot of... Oh, uh, but Post-war well, German writers captured its spirit well, brilliantly. I would, I would plump for art and literature. I'd plump for, even though he left, I'd plump for George Gross, uh, the the, right. uh, the Dadaist artist who who captured. 
the essence of Weimar Berlin so perfectly, but also captured the, 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 the rise of the Nazi regime too. He was the first to see into this regime, which had brought torture back into the public realm. But in terms of literature, I would nominate the author Eric Kastner, who was best known for his children's story, Emil and the Detectives, but wrote some fantastic uh, adult uh, fiction. His adult fiction was extraordinarily powerful. There's a, a novel he's called Going to the Dogs, which is about, set in Berlin in 1931, and it's just excoriating, really. It's, 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 it's a minefield of sexual neurosis and forewarning shadows and sort of suicides. But at the same time, his writing is has a kind of cynical freshness about it and, uh, and it could laugh out loud quality. Now, he ended up writing the screenplay for a Nazi epic in 1942, Munchausen, uh, an extraordinary kind of fantasy epic, which I think is, is still available today. And it's one of the very few Nazi films that actually withstands really because Eric Kastner, as the screenwriter, made it not anti-Nazi, but so threaded through with ambiguity. You can't say Goebbels must have just simply had his held in his hands. This, this is not what was intended. Uh, Eric Kastner's identity had to be hidden from Hitler uh, if Hitler discovered Sinclair, Hitler. Sinclair, uh, we did a show with Brian Gamble, another English journalist, on Germany as the beacon of hope. Um, could we... Replace Germany and say Berlin. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning I live in San Francisco, which is a city yeah. without whether the idea of the public and the public space has been essentially destroyed. Is Berlin still, it may not be the city at the center of the world, but is it the city that somehow captures the spirit yeah. of, I mean, the I think, of, the, of the public space where every time I go to Berlin, everything works. I mean, even though it's bohemian and exciting and offbeat in many ways everything works there public transportation everything works and also it is the, 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 the suffusing all the streets i suppose is now what we would call uh, not the german ideal but the european ideal i mean that's what they stand for in the sense that so many berliners uh, will tell you that they would they would prefer to be known as european first and and german you're second. not going to go and live um, there sinclair i've I always thought that if i was a, for 40 years younger i'd probably go and live in berlin uh, yeah, you know, I, I, I'd, be, I'd be very happy to live there now. I've, I've found it absolutely, absolutely delightful. Not as delightful as uh, Dresden, where I really... Uh, Dresden yeah, is where Dresden, you I was in Dresden uh, when uh, I was making my film for How to Fix Democracy, another amazing city. Well, uh, one thing I think you can capture from this is that Sinclair McKay is a fount of wisdom. Uh, his book, uh -huh. Berlin, Life and Death in the City at the Center of the World, just out in the U.S. It's a classic. Uh, an instant classic, I think. A wonderful, wonderful description of the book, um, of the city, of its history, of its complicated past and its potential you. for the future. Sinclair, congratulations. Anything well, else in addition yeah. to uh, your books on Berlin? You've mentioned a couple of other wonderful books on Berlin that you've read. What are you reading these days in addition to books on Berlin? Uh, in addition to books on Berlin, I've just read a, 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 a marvellous book by Michael Smith, which I think is going to be published in America quite soon, called uh, The Real Special Relationship, uh, which is about the intelligence relationship between America and Britain. Oh, yeah. well, you know, politically, the special relationship, we all know, has always been uh, cobblers as an idea. There's, there's absolutely no such thing. But in terms of the intelligence agencies, uh, the National Security Agency and GCHQ, uh, the FBI and MI6, they have been threaded together ever since the, ever since the war, actually, and and Bletchley Park. And here is a wonderful new book, which is almost a shadow history of the post-war world as seen through the eyes of intelligence. Um, it's, it's it's gripping, enormous fun. The other thing I'm reading, uh, this may sound absurd, especially now at my age. Uh, finally got round to it. War and Peace. Ah. Uh, because how can 
uh, in the circumstances that we are in today, how can how, how can one not? But uh, but heavens, there's a lot of it. <laughs>